Uh, hey, welcome to Southland City Church. I'm Jason. Uh, really glad that you're here. And uh, we, we kind of say the same thing every week, but we don't want to stop saying it. If you're new here, uh, we're especially grateful that you would uh, take what might be a brave step and walk into a new place, a new community. And we want to honor you for that and just let you know that we're committed to creating a place where you belong and where you love for who you are. And if we can help you experience that here, I hope you'll let me know or anybody who seems to know what's going on around here, which is most people, like, or at least they know as much as I know, which isn't much, but like, we're in this together. So you'll find someone who seems to, if they know where the bathrooms are, that's a good start. And then ask them how to take your next step with our community and we'll take it from there. Um, what's going on right now is we're in a conversation about who we are as a community and what we're trying to do with that. So we're going to press further in. Uh, if you want to make an offering, we'll give you a chance to do that, and our greeters will pass some baskets around. But as always, there's just no pressure at all to do that. And if you do want to give online, you can always go to our website and do that there too. Uh, but we're in a conversation about like, who we are. So South and City Church is kind of a new thing. We've just gotten started. And uh, at the very beginning, when we started talking about this idea of a new community like this for the city of South Bend, in the city of South Bend, questions quickly come up like, what's it going to be like? And the temptation with those questions is to move quickly to these very, very tangible things like, what's the music going to be like, you know, or like, what's the style of the service going to be? And we wanted to swim upstream from that and first just talk about ways that we see the way of Jesus playing out in the here and now for us. Uh, it's, it's a little less tangible, perhaps, but I think it's really important that we start there rather than just like working on the deliverables that will be part of our community. So uh, in that conversation, some mantras became really useful for us. And it dawned on us recently that if you've been here for just a little bit, you may not know where these mantras came from. Maybe you've heard them used, but you didn't know what they meant. Or maybe you've seen us doing something that's aligned with one of these mantras, but you didn't know there's a reason behind it. And actually, we also introduced a new mantra uh, a couple of weeks ago that was really important to us. So that's what we're up to. Uh, we hope that these give you a little glimpse of what we're trying to do as a church. And um, th this is hopefully like a great gift for your, your everyday life. Like, maybe you're like, like, how do I actually get my hands on this thing that, that feels really beautiful and important, the way of Jesus for the world, this way of being human, of, of following that path? Like, how do I actually get my hands on it? How would I begin to move toward it? I hope these are a gift for you, uh, not just like instructive, but like actual language that we could use in our day-to-day -day life. So that's the goal. And uh, we're going to uh, revisit some old content and kind of press forward into some new stuff to get into this today. First week that we uh, had the series, we looked at uh, a big idea that shows up in a few places, including the writer C.S. Lewis. And I just want to return to the same quote, and we're going to start there again and go toward tonight's mantra. So here's what C.S. Lewis says. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Like the, the idea of being like, we are going somewhere, we are becoming something whether we like it or not. This is just a fact of being human. Like to be human is high stakes. 
whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not. We are becoming something, we're going somewhere. Uh, we started there four weeks ago, and I want to press further into that. The scriptures uh, talk about this left and right in all sorts of different ways. Here's one little example that talks not just about the fact that we're going somewhere, but that it's our job to help us get there and to go in the right direction. So from, this is uh, from a letter written to one of the churches uh, in the New Testament. We read, so Christ himself gave these gifts to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's a big picture. (laughs) Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that the potential would be that together we could walk with one another toward that picture of being human that looks like what we see in Jesus. That's, that's like high stakes. That's a big picture there, right? So uh, when churches are at their best, I want to argue that we take this very seriously. Like when communities like this are at our best, when we're doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, we take it seriously that to be human is to be high stakes, right? That to be with one another is to be walking with each other in one of two directions toward becoming what is whole and, and healthy and alive and good, or helping one another invest ourselves in our brokenness and our shame in our rebellions and the things that tear the world apart. Like that's happening when we're together here, right? And churches are at their best when they take that seriously. And I would argue churches are at their best when they take Jesus seriously when he says like, I'm interested in that project. Like that's, that's actually what I would like to do is walk with you in that project, right? So when churches get into that, sometimes we use uh, sort of old churchy words to talk about that, like discipling, discipleship, disciple-making, which, again, at its best, is like it's about that project of what we are becoming together and what we're learning from Jesus, right? So uh, years ago, the church I was working at at the time, we were trying to figure out our approach to discipleship. And in fact, I think the task was described as create a disciple-making, do I keep cutting it out? Sorry about that. Uh, creating a disciple-making system. And I was one of the people on that task. And so, uh, so I, I, I do what I do, which is I figure I, I can solve everything if I just read the right books, right? So I go and I get a bunch of books on disciple-making, like the latest ideas, the ways that churches are doing this thing called disciple-making. And I'm reading through all of them from different sources and perspectives, but almost all of them, there's something wrong with it, and I can't figure out what. You ever like have that experience like your intuition is ahead of your brain a little bit so you don't have language for it but somehow like something isn't quite right something's not settling there and I'm in this for weeks or months at a time and I'm sort of working on it in the back of my head all the time right so I'll be in a meeting about something else or I'll be hanging out with friends or I'll be doing whatever is in my everyday life but in the back of my head there's this problem that I'm chewing on what is it about the approach the ideas the language or something's not quite right And it's in the middle of that whole discernment uh, that I go visit my brother. Now, at this point in my brother's life, my life, my brother had gone from uh, working in high fashion in Chicago and Miami to owning a farm in southwest Michigan, which was not a turn that we saw coming. (laughs) And so I'm trying to, like, catch up with this development in my brother's life. And so I go visit him on the farm so I can see what's going on there. And I'm out there, like, in the field with my brother at his farm. And... Uh, I have what you might call sort of critical distance uh, from the experience. Like, I'm not a farmer, so I'm kind of seeing things with fresh eyes, right? Like, like, frankly, like, I'm as at home on a farm as I am on a football field, which is to say, not at all. Like, 
So like, I'm kind of like, wow, this is all new to me. I'm like a, like a little kid on a field trip to a farm. You know what I mean? And my brother's out there in the field and he's showing me some stuff. So we actually walk among the crops that he's growing. And he's got some corn there at the farm. So he has uh, like one a little batch of rows of car- corn that were planted with one seed. And then right next to them, another batch of rows of corn that were planted with a different variation on the seed. And these are meant to have different resistances to pesticides or, or to pests or whatever. And so we're looking at that. And he shows me how like this batch of corn did really well. And he rips an ear off and pulls the husk back. And it's a really good looking ear of corn. And then right next to it, just a like, th- few feet away in this other batch of corn, he rips an ear off and he pulls the husk back and it's just completely demolished by pests side by side there. He starts talking about like why that went that way and why the other part went that way and he talks about weather and he points to a part of the field that sort of uh, sits low and he describes how on a really bad rain like that saturated or soaked and it can be bad for what he's growing there. You can have rot in the field. He talks about the weather that has come and gone and how it helped him or hurt him and I'm just sort of like immersed in this experience in the field with my brother and little by little, a bit of clarity emerges for me. It wasn't like a light bolt, like, it was like a slow, like, dimmed rheostat that, like, slowly turned on for me. Uh, but something became clear there that helped me go back to that frustration I was having with all the disciple-making stuff. So let me see if I can unpack that for you and take a sort of mantra. Uh, for most of human history, it's been normal for most human beings to live their life in a field of sorts, Right? Like for most of human history, most human beings get their hands in the dirt sometimes. They grow their own food. For most of human history, it's normal for most human beings to think about the way that we sustain ourselves, the way that we grow and heal and move the whole human story forward is, is deeply connected to the, the things that we do in the field, right? I mean, this just makes sense, you know? And so, um, so this even shows in the language of most of humanity in history. And what happens is the things that you can see like the tangible ways that we're feeding ourselves and doing our work, often become the ways that we describe the things that we cannot see. That, that's just a normal human thing. We use the things we can see and get our hands on to describe the things that we cannot see and can't like get our hands on, right? So you'll see field language showing up when humans talk about things you can't see. For example, like when Jesus talks like this. He says, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now clearly Jesus isn't talking about literal vines. He's talking about that way in which a person finds themselves in union with God and growing in life in God, right? But he's using this very sort of visible, tangible thing. How about in Matthew here? So this is in another one of the stories of Jesus. This is a bunch of Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God, which is a way of talking about that that invitation to experience a life with God and and, and for the things that God is for in the world. And he says, well, let me back up here. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake and such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. And while all the people stood on the shore and then he told them many things in parables saying, for example, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Or just a little bit later in that chapter, how about this? Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat uh, sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Or how about this? A little later, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. So you get the picture, right? Like... When all around you, when, when the sort of shared human experience is life in the field, 
you're going to start describing things you can't see with the things that you can see. And so, like, agricultural, ecological sort of language is really normal in the scriptures to talk about what God is up to and how we become alive and how we grow and how we heal. And, uh, of course, like, that, that just happens to be the metaphor that's close at hand there. I mean, that's certainly true for people in these times and places. But I also want to propose to you that I, I actually think that if Jesus were here today, he would probably still be quite fond of agricultural metaphors. Uh, something happened not too long ago in human history, which is that all of a sudden, I mean, in terms of long history, you could say all of a sudden, we went from an experience as humans where most of us are close to the field to an experience where many of us are not, but there's other ways of working and moving the world forward. And I'm painting in broad stroke here, so like hang with me as I do this sort of sloppily, but the gist of this is that we call it a revolution and it was industrial, and we went from fields to factories, and there's something fundamentally different about the experience in a factory, right? So like, like in a field, I'm there with my brother, and he's I'm describing the experience of putting seed in the ground, and he's part of a process uh, that's bigger than him, and he's in a completely uncontrolled environment, right? It's out there in the weather, you know what I mean? And so he has to collaborate and cooperate and all that kind of stuff. And then there comes a time when, when we, we as a like human race, like, well, we get smarter and we, we figure new things out and we figure out that you can build walls in a roof and do climate control and then create a hermetically sealed environment, right? Where you control all the variables and you can uh, bring all the raw materials in that you need for the process and, put, and design a machine that does the right thing. And then on the other end of that, what comes out is like the perfect thing that you want. And what I realized in my brother's field was that somehow that had seeped into all of this language about how we grow and heal and become alive, all of that language about discipleship. They, they didn't say it out loud, but it's as if there was a factory mentality in everything they were writing. So I'm going to put you in my process. I've got a perfectly designed six or seven steps that are going to walk you through the things that I need to take you through, and you're going to come out on the other end exactly the way that I want you to be. Isn't that great? Like, it's kind of tempting to think, man, if I could just give you a six-step process, we can implement it in any church. We're going to get you where we want you to be, and everything's perfect. In fact, you can sell a lot of books if you can convince people that you have a process that's foolproof like that. I've read them, and they sell a lot of copies. It's, it's really tempting. It's, it's comforting to think we could control this whole process, right? The problem is I just don't think it's true. Like there's something um, deeply connected to the reality of what it means to be human that shows up in those agricultural metaphors that gets lost a little bit when we turn toward the illusions of, of a factory sort of consciousness. So this brings us to our mantra, and I want to unpack this for us just a little bit. The mantra is simply this. Fields, not factories. Fields, not factories. Now, I want to, I want to explain this a little bit. I want to sketch it for us a bit. As I do that, like a couple of disclaimers. First of all, I hope this is clear. This is not about like disparaging factories or factory work, okay? I love factories. Most of my favorite things come from factories. I got a new iPhone yesterday. I'm crazy about whatever factory built that iPhone. Like, big fan, okay? This is not disparaging that kind of work. And in fact, there's some beautiful human ingenuity that shows up in, in factory work. So it's not about that, right? Uh, but, but there is something intrinsic in the sort of human experience of life lived in the field versus everything we've experienced since then when we have more and more control in our environments and all that. So I, I want to just press into that distinction a little bit because it matters, it matters that we're aware of it, that we're awakened to it. So, uh, so I'm going to move through some uh, sort of contrast points here. And as we do this mantra work, 
Uh, these are meant to be evocative. Uh, they're meant to be portable, like language that you can take with you. They're not incredibly precise, right? So what we're going to move through here is, is painting in broad stroke, but I think it'll help us get our hands on this a bit. So a few differences between fields and factories. Uh, how about this one? In a factory, there, there's no intrinsic seasonality to a factory. Now, you might work in a factory that has seasons of work, but I'm just saying the fact is there's nothing intrinsically seasonal about having a building that you control all the inputs and the outputs on, right? Unless your customers live in seasonality or whatever, your business cycle. But in a factory, uh, there's nothing intrinsic about seasonality, but in a field, it's deeply intrinsic to the experience, right? So, um, so in a factory, in theory, if you have enough resources and enough know-how, you could create an environment where you can crank out whatever you want, as much as you want, as frequently as you want, like, you could do 365, right? You could do three shifts a day. You could literally have a factory that never stops running if you just have the resources and the design that you need, right? But in a field, it's, it's just not true. In, in a factory mindset, we might think it would be best if you could just keep cranking things out. Wouldn't that be great? The more output, the better. The more productivity, the better. But in a field, it's like, it's like, it's like nature is saying something to us. Like, it wouldn't even be good if that were the case. You need seasons where you're just in the dark, like a seed that goes into the ground and just sits there for a while. You need moments where a field is fallow, where you're not even trying to grow anything out of that, right? Uh, factories don't have seasons in the way that fields do. And this is important for us as a community. Uh, so for example, if you were here in November, we did four weeks on our relationship to time. And it was important for us to say, like, there are seasons in your life. There are seasons for rest and seasons for work. There are seasons to jump into things and seasons to cut things out. Um, you might be trying to live in a season that has long since passed, and it would be really brave and important for you to just recognize that season is done and you're in a different place now. Uh, we also, in November, we talked about the gift that the church gives us, the, the historic church of, of seasons in, the, in, the, in our year together, seasons like Lent and Advent that help us uh, live in the movement of the story of Jesus communally, collectively, and we'll be turning to Lent in just, just a couple of weeks here as we prepare for Easter, so that's coming up. Uh, factories, no seasons. Fields, seasons, and they're good. Uh, here's another uh, difference between factories and, and fields. In a factory, I would argue, like, in the experience of a factory, the basic question is, what can you make happen? If you're a factory owner, factory operator, like, what can you make happen, right? What can you get done? Find the employees, get the raw materials, get the right, get the right uh, machines, and crank out those widgets. What you make happen. But sitting there in the field with my brother, it dawned on me that often the question in a field is what do you do with what happens? Right? I mean, like, there's plenty that my brother needs to make happen in the field. He needs to show up when it's time to plant. He needs to maintain the equipment. But so much of his success is not about what he makes happen. It's about what he does with what happens. When the weather doesn't cooperate with you, when a late frost comes, what do you do with what happens? And this is really important for the way that we uh, preach and the way we talk about like, our journey together. And if you don't get this clear, you might end up doing some really, really dumb things to the Bible and some really, really dumb things to the people that you're teaching, some really hurtful things. Uh, let me give an example. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins his core teaching. Uh, there's three chapters in the book of Matthew that sort of delineate his core teaching that his followers understood to be at the heart of how he describes life in the kingdom of God. And the first words that he offers in that core teaching, sometimes this is known as the Beatitudes. This is Matthew 5, 3, and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Now watch what happens here. If you bring a factory mindset to a field text, and I would argue the whole Bible is a field text. If you bring a factory mindset to a field text, you might take away the wrong thing. And it's not uncommon to hear this preached or talked about in a way as if, like if you show up for the job of the factory, you're like, all right, what are my instructions? What am I supposed to do? I'm here to make something happen. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then it's your job to act like you're poor in spirit. Like get poor somehow in your heart. I don't, I don't know. Like, like, like hang your head somehow. Like pretend that you're not happy. I, I don't know. Like what's that supposed to look like? But the, the problem is you, in that moment, you, you may not be experiencing a poverty of spirit. You may actually be experiencing some fullness of spirit, some joy, some happiness, some warmth, some fullness that's, that's actually propelling you through the day. And then you bring a factory mentality to this, and if it's all about what you can do, what you make happen, and Jesus says, well, you're blessed if you're poor in spirit, then your job is to get yourself poor in spirit, right? But what I've observed is that can lead to a kind of emotional contortionism, where you, like you try to bend your emotional experience or your, or your spiritual experience into this category that you think you're supposed to do. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I've actually I've been in religious environments where like, like I actually thought the message I was receiving is, you're supposed to make yourself sad now. Anybody ever been there? And I'm like, I'm not. I am sometimes, but right now I'm not. What do I do with that, you know? If, it's, if you bring a factory mindset to a field text, it won't work quite right. You might get the wrong takeaway, but what if you bring a field mindset? What if the big question in the field is, what do you do with what happens? And what if Jesus is saying, the first word I have for you is when you find yourself feeling the farthest from spirit, when you find yourself mourning or feeling empty, like when that experience comes into your life, I have good news for you. That's actually a starting point. We can do some good stuff with that. This turns, instead of like a prescription, like what are you going to make happen, it turns into a gift. And it takes the first words of Jesus' teachings and helps us hear them for what they are, which is um, a gift of profound blessing for the moments when we feel completely, utterly unblessed. A promise of the presence of God when we feel like God is very, very far away. Uh, It's really important to get clear on whether we're reading a field text or a factory text so we understand what it's saying to us and what it's asking of us. How about this one? Another uh, sort of contrast. I, I would argue that like, generally, like in a factory mindset, it's about control, which makes sense, right? Like the better you are at controlling all the inputs and the variables and the processes, the better your outputs will be, right? I mean, that simply makes sense. And quite frankly, if I were like looking for something to be produced in a factory, and I thought about hiring you in your factory, I would wanna know how good you are at controlling things. That would probably be my primary question. Like quality assurance, quality control, how good are you at controlling the outputs in this process? That would be my primary question. But if, if, if in a field, it's, it's largely about what you do with what happens, like what do you do with the things that you can't control, then I, I think a better word for us is cultivation. And there's some nuance there that's, that's really important. Um, to control things, I think, would be to, to presume that you can determine the, the outcome or the output and then just work the process toward the outcome or the output that you want, right? But to cultivate something begins with the question, what does this want to be? And how do I help it get there? Those are importantly different, right? I remember uh, our very first experimental gathering as a church. We were over at the brick, and every time I try to remember the timeline and these things on stage, I get off by like a year. I don't know when it was. Sometime a while ago, we had an experimental gathering. It was our first one. 
And I remember um, I, I met with a friend who was at the gathering, after the gathering, and he's an he's a insightful, discerning person, and I just asked him what he experienced or what he saw. And the thing he said, it marked me so deeply. It was simple. He said, what I felt was something wants to happen here. Something wants to happen here with this thing that's being birthed. And it struck me because it wasn't, Jay, I love what you want to see happen here, right? It wasn't like, let's see what we can make happen here. There's a nuance there that's really important. Something wants to happen here. Like something is being birthed, and it's not our job to tell it what it is. It's our job to understand what it is and steward it into life, right? I mean, surely this is the experience of every person who puts a seed in the ground and understands that you, like, you can't put a carrot seed in the ground and decide you want a turnip. You, you can't do that, right? Now, if you're, if you're really good on control in a factory, you might be able to take the raw materials and make them whatever you want. But in the field, I think it begins with the question, like, what does this want to be? And how do, how do we nurture that thing toward its fullest life? This is important, like, in your, in your personal life for a bunch of reasons. Like, it may, be that, it may be that you've been given a very particular mold of what it looks like to be holy or good or alive. And that mold is much narrower than the invitation that Jesus is actually giving us. And so maybe religious voices in your life have tried to control you toward that end. Maybe you've tried to control yourself toward that end. And that process just gets frustrated over and over again. And I would tell you, well, you can't, you can't really make a, a turnip seed turn into a carrot. And, and the metaphors that Jesus likes to use for what it means to be human are, are the kind of metaphors that come from the field, right? Where God has given some particular kind of potential to this thing that will come alive. We've got to know what that's supposed to be and nurture it toward that, right? Uh, maybe it's like your professional aspirations, your work even. Like if your life, if your work, if, your, if who you are is factory, well, yeah, then just decide whatever you want and do it. And like just strong arm your way toward it, white knuckle your way through it, right? But like what if part of the process is, is the sort of inner journey, the discernment, the learning about yourself to figure out like what, what gift are you here to give the world? Like what actually wants to come alive in you? What if that's where we started and our career aspirations and our visions for our lives and our families. Um, and then for the church, like when we think about what we're doing here, uh, it, it's heavy on my mind that we, we don't want to just wake up every day and think, what do we want this to be? I feel like that would be a gross um, negligence against our responsibility, which is to say, God, God what, what should this thing be? What do you want it to be? And how do we steward it toward that? Uh, when you're in church world like I am, um, there's a lot of smart people in church world who have figured some stuff out. And one of the things like you figure out over time, there are some levers that you can pull to make things just grow numerically. There's like some gasoline you can pour on a fire. And if, if what you decide is you just want the biggest thing, the fastest thing, and the, like the most number of people, there are some levers that you can pull. And, and some of that's good, right? Because like it's, it's always good when a church uh, is reaching people and creating a home for people and paying the bills. Those are all really good things, right? Um, but I'll just tell you, there have been a number of points in our recent history where we might have even planned to pull a lever. Like maybe we had some way that we thought we could sort of add some help to this thing. And we just get to that point on the calendar where we thought we would do that thing, pull that lever. And we just realize it's not the right thing for this. It's, it's not what this needs or wants right now. It's not what this wants to be. And if I were just sort of tunnel visually in this thing, like, like a factory process, I might have just gone ahead and done it because that's what you do. And what we're trying to learn is to ask God, like, what does this thing want to be? And how do we help it become that? Uh, one more uh, example between control and cult or between uh, fields and factories. I would argue, like, 
good factory management is largely about efficiency, and I'm all for efficiency. That's a good thing, right? It's good to not waste effort, waste labor, waste materials, waste resources. That's really good. But I would argue um, that efficiency is uh, apparently a fairly low-key value for Jesus in the journey that we're on because our journeys are just not very efficient. They're, they're, like, they aren't. They, they take their time. You can't always expedite the processes that you want to expedite in your life. And this is really hard when we're impatient with our own journey, right? I mean, I remember when I was in college, and there were, like, some very particular wounds that I was trying to heal from. And, they, I mean, they were, they were utterly debilitating in my life. I mean, they caused me to fail out of a semester or two. Like, I mean, this was really hard stuff that I was working through, and I just couldn't get over them. And I remember for quite a while in that season of life, like, I just, I just want to get this done, right? Like, let's be efficient about this. I'm like, bring it on, man. Like, counselor, therapist, doctor, pastor, whatever. Somebody tell me what I need to do. I will do it as quickly as possible, and we will be healed. That, that's what I want. And that's normal, I think, when you're frustrated with yourself. When you're frustrated with who you are or how you've hurt people or how you've been wounded, that's really normal to want that. But I'm, I'm telling you, like, in a field, you can't rush things. You can't put a seed in the ground that takes six months to come out and tell, tell it that I want it in six days. Like, that just doesn't work, right? But you can probably expedite the flow in a factory and make things more efficient. And it was in my life, it was um, a couple of the holiest people I know who didn't, um, didn't light a fire under my butt to get me to like, do it faster or work harder. It was some of the holiest people I knew who sat beside me and said, hey, this is going to take a while. And that's okay. You can't rush this. You'll have your part to play. You will have your steps to take. You'll have your work to do. But this is going to take a while. This thing that wants to be birthed in you, this new life that wants to come out of you, it's not on your schedule. I'm sorry, but it's not. You can't engineer your way toward this thing being faster. It's just not the way that life works. And maybe you need to hear that. I was talking to a friend who's a member of this community a little while ago. And he's on his journey, and his journey is recovery from uh, some substance abuse issues. And we were talking there, and um, as he was talking to me, I, I was probably projecting, which is not a good thing to do, but like, because of my experience, I was probably projecting onto what I heard from him, but I just I saw a bit of myself in him, like me from that season of my life where I wanted everything to be like, efficient, you know? And I just, um, I sensed that he was maybe trying to like, maybe make sure I knew that he was doing everything exactly right because apparently that's what's expected of him. And, and I, I just had to stop him and say, hey, just so you know, just from my perspective, I don't think your recovery journey is going to be a straight line. I, I mean, I wish, that'd be great, right? But just so you know, I don't know anybody whose recovery journey or any other journey of healing or growth. I've never seen that be a straight line. So just so you know, I, I'm not expecting that of you or for you. And you don't have to apologize to me when it's a little wandering and inefficient. Like, you don't have to hang your head or be afraid of this community or be shy about that. Like, I just don't know that. I can think of straight lines that build great products and, you know, make great technology, but I just have never seen a straight line that makes a human being alive and whole and healed. And so, um, so it's important to us that we hold on to uh, Fields Not Factories because if we don't, we might sort of like inadvertently let this mindset slip in here that dehumanizes us and causes us to forget that the, the business that we are in is human beings coming alive, becoming whole. And that's a process of life, not a product, not a process that you can just engineer and make as efficient as you want. 
Now, um, one example that sort of brings all this together for us, and it's something that happens in the life of our church, and I want to share this with you, especially because if like, you're new here, it's coming up right around the corner, and I want to make sure that you're in on it and, and know that you can be a part of it. Uh, and the thing I'm talking about is tables. So uh, our life together as a church, we have gatherings and tables and streets. And you're in a gathering right now, surprise. Uh, if you didn't know that, welcome to the gathering. And streets is, is the word that we use for all the ways that we meet our neighbors on common ground and serve common good. Uh, but then we have tables, um, which are like depressingly simple. And like sometimes like, like I, I meet other pastors in other places and like I'm afraid I'm a huge disappointment because like pastors love to trade notes, you know, and that's why I was like, what are you doing for like small groups or whatever? And I'm like, uh, we, we eat meals together. And they're like, yeah, but like what kind of curriculum are you using? No, uh, we, we eat meals together. I guess the curriculum was whatever is on the menu that night, you know. Um, but they really are quite simple, but it doesn't mean that they're not deep or, or meaningful. So tables are already happening in the life of our community, and we're going to open up some new tables soon, and we'd love to invite you into them. Here's the basic gist of a table in our community. Uh, you and, an, and a group of people, you'll commit to sticking with one another for whatever the duration of that table is. It might be three or four months. It might be like as long as nine months, but there's always an end point, so you're not like, you know, just like interminably committed to people that you find out you can't stand, right? Like that, that's kind of rough. But you do commit for a little season of time together. And during that season of time, you'll gather roughly twice a month and you'll actually eat a meal together around a table. And we don't have a curriculum. Um, we just have a couple of questions that we bring to the table to try to sort of elevate the conversation a bit. The first question is, like, what's the worst thing you've ever done that you're most ashamed of that you've never told anyone? <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> First question comes uh, from the scriptures, from the book of Genesis. It comes from a moment between God and Adam and Eve uh, when, they, when they are uh, sort of in a moment of, of brokenness or fear. And God simply says to them, where are you? Where are you? Right now, where are you? And at the table, I mean, it could be as simple as you saying, I'm in a good place. Great. Or I'm in a difficult place. I feel like I'm on a mountaintop or I'm in a valley. It could be, man, in, in my work life, I'm in like a really great spot, but in my family life, I'm not. It could be, I'm in a place that feels very far from God or in a place that feels abandoned by God. I'm in a lonely place. Like it, it could be any of those things. And the point is, it's, it's, it's up to you. We're not here to push you on this. We're not here to like drag you into radical self-disclosure. Uh, we're here to cultivate something slowly together. And so we hope that question will help us do that. And then the second question also comes from the scriptures. It comes from a moment where Jesus sees a man that nobody else seems to have seen, a beggar. And Jesus looks at the man and simply asks, what do you want? What desire is speaking in you right now? What is moving you forward right now? What, what do you want? And uh, an honest answer at a table might be, I want a nap. <laughs> That's, that'd be great. I want a break from the kids. That's great. It might be, um, I want to not be so alone. It might be, man, I, I want to create something. I've got this dream bubbling up inside of me. It might be, I want to find some teammates. It might be, I want a new job. Like, those are all uh, really meaningful ways to begin to connect with one another in the subterranean parts of our lives and find out how God is stirring something up in us and moving us toward life. So that's tables. A, a meal roughly twice a month, a couple of questions that we come back to, and a limited amount of time that we all commit to at a table and I'm telling you, like, like, as we have shaped tables, we've come back again and again to fields, not factories. Table's not a place to manufacture anything, not a, a place to, like, crank anything out. We don't, we don't have some prescriptive process where in six weeks at your table, like, we expect something in particular to happen. 
But we are trying to cultivate and be intentional and create opportunities for the kind of life to actually flourish that we believe God wants to see flourishing in us. Uh, a little while ago, I was in a, a friend's backyard, and she is a master gardener. And it was springtime, and we were looking at what she had planted, but most of it wasn't visible yet above the soil. And I, I, I joked earlier about not like being at home on a farm. I, I really like I've not really dug my hands into the dirt very much. And so I remember being out there with this friend of mine, and we looked down and we see something like this. You know, this tiny little sprout of green coming out of dark soil. And just this, this little thing sort of breaking out of the earth, you know? And I remember being, I mean, that, you know, that's big on the screen, right? But we're talking about like, you know, like the size of a bug that you could step on. And I remember standing there with my friend, and I think her sense of connection to what's happening there fueled my own sense of awe, and something struck me. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of technology. I think what human beings can create and do is amazing and inspiring. But there's something about being in a field where God is making something alive, and what you did is you put a, a little pebble-sized thing into the dirt and waited, and that came out. And soon it would feed people and make them alive. There's a certain kind of awe or wonder standing in front of that tiny little sprout that I haven't felt standing in front of like the most impressive accomplishments that human beings can build because there's something about realizing that like you're part of a process that's bigger than you, that's being animated by something beyond you, that's being energized and, and brought to bear in the world and, and you get to be a part of it and we're going to work hard and we're going to be exhausted sometimes as we cultivate in the field. But at the end of the day, we will know it wasn't just something we manufactured it's something that we cultivated with God who makes things alive. So we, we don't want to lose that spirit as a church as we try to help one another grow and walk together. Fields, not factories. Now, um, we've been through a lot of big ideas in the last four weeks, and it's often on our heart as a community that we wouldn't just sort of hit a big idea and, and just kind of move right past it, right? And so I don't know about you, like, the rest of my day, the rest of my week is pretty hectic. Um, yours might be as well. And so, like, we just wanted to carve out some space right here in our gathering together before we go um, to sit with these ideas a little bit. So uh, you got one of these cards when you walked in, but if you didn't, if you want to raise a hand, you can get one of these cards. And I'm going to simply, uh, quickly, briefly revisit all four of these mantras. And then we just want to create a space for prayer and reflection uh, to give us a chance to see what these might be saying to us. So uh, in the last four weeks, uh, we started with practices, not performances. Let me remind you what that was about. Um, simply this, your life doesn't have to be a performance. Your faith doesn't have to be a performance. This church doesn't have to be a performance, which is so liberating because instead we can simply practice and stretch our hands and stretch our lives around these, these movements, these ways of being human that Jesus is teaching us in. Practices, not performances. Everyone, an icon. That first word that is spoken over humanity in the scriptures, the revolutionary idea in Genesis that every human being comes into this world as a bearer of the image of God with that intrinsic dignity that every time you look at a person across the divide from you, whatever divide that we have made, every time you look at a person, you are looking at a person who bears the image of God. So to honor them is to honor God. And to learn to see them well, to see them for who they are, is to see a little glimpse of the beauty of God in the world. Everyone an icon. Sushi, not fish stew. But like every day there are temptations that come along that will compromise a clarity of identity in our life and lead us to 
cluttered, unfocused things, when in fact you might have been given a good gift that is your life and your life for the world. And if we can remain clear on who we are and what we're here for, we can maintain a certain kind of simplicity that propels that gift into the world. And then today, fields, not factories. So uh, Dan's going to lead us in a brief sort of uh, prayer in the form of a song. And then we'll just have a few minutes to sit quietly with these. And um, I hope you can take this home, put it on the fridge or someplace you find it useful. But to sit with these for a few moments and there'll be some questions on the screen uh, to prompt us into reflection. And then we'll do a bit of a debrief uh, before we go. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. Let's sing that again. Here's my heart. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak. 